1: Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Going to be a very important conversation about leadership today. It's a different spin than what we normally do on this show, so should be pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Joined this morning by Mickey Connolly. He is the chairman of Conversant and the author of a new book called The Vitality Imperative, How Connected Leaders and Their Teams Achieve More with Less Time, Money, and Stress. Obviously, a very critically important conversation. Mickey, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Good to be on the show. Well, it's good to be with you. I appreciate you carving out some time to join me. I know you're awfully busy, so appreciate that. Mickey, before we get into this very important book and its critical message, uh, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and then give us that quick 10,000-foot view of Conversant. What do you guys do? How do you serve your market?
0: Well, talking about Conversant and me is almost the same conversation since I was the co-founder of the company, so let me try to treat both of those at once. For about the last 30 years, what we've worked on is really how the timing and quality of conversations affect the success of any group. And we started out with groups like groups in police work and military work and then moved into... Uh, large global organizations, and today we're almost all working in the Global 1000, but we think that any enterprise functions as a network of conversations, and if you can be really effective at having the right conversations at the right time with the right people, you get more done, and if they're high-quality conversations, they actually resolve differences and turn them into coordinated action that doesn't require a lot of supervision. So basically what we do is we try to improve the network of conversations so any organization can get more done with less time, money, and stress. So that's the short version, and we've done it with military, police, and large global organizations, nonprofits, and profits. We've been in about 100 countries and 90 languages and around 400 organizations.
1: Yeah, very impressive. You know, I lied. I I want to, a quick follow up to one thing you said that I think is really critical for all of us to understand. I hear you say this idea that we are. This is all about a network of conversations, and I, I think I understand what that means. At least I I have a vision that I think of when I hear you say that. But I think there's. I think that's really critical because I think I agree with you. Can you just quickly clarify what that is so that everyone listening really understands what you mean by that?
0: Well, for instance, uh, we work with some companies doing very sophisticated aerospace projects. So one I can think of is 13 years long. But if you look at that whole 13 years before a particular space mission is successful, there are going to be all kinds of different people having to converse with each other about different things along the way. They're going to invent possibilities together, solutions. They're going to make promises and requests. In that world, there's a whole network of people who the quality of their connection to each other dictates the quality of the results they produce. So we mean it in a very practical sense. You know, one time we were doing a project in the military that had to do with the turnaround time of a single submarine maintenance and all we did was we mapped out who has to talk to whom about what from the time the submarine is announced for maintenance until it's released for duty right (laughs) and that was a network of conversations and then you look at what the reason is for each of those conversations and how effective they are and it's extraordinary how it gives you leverage points to go improve things and in that particular case they we're able to improve the maintenance time from a 55-day cycle down to 20, just by improving, understanding the network of conversations and improving the quality of them. Mm.
1: Oh, that's a fascinating conversation. We, we could probably go down a rabbit hole and talk on that for for probably hours. But let's dive into the book, which obviously is is related to to what you just talked about. This. Let me lead off though with this question, because I'm always intrigued by how authors answer a question. I mean, there's. Mickey, if you go to Google or if you go to Amazon and you type, I want to find a lead book on how to improve my leadership capabilities or how teams can achieve more, or certainly there's plenty of content out there about doing more with less time and and money and stress and all that. I mean, why did the world need this take from Mickey Connolly on, on all these subjects?
0: Well, uh, one thing that I want to acknowledge is that I'm a co-author in this book. There's two others of us who are Mentioned but also it all comes from the work of people all over the conversing community understood But the reason that we wanted to take it on and as you know, we named the book the vitality imperative Is that we think that what's happened over the last? uh, Since about the mid 80s is some radical changes in how organizations function happened It's starting with the quality movement where in the 80s. We started getting jealous of all the quality improvements happening in Japan and taking huge amount of waste out of systems, which started to reduce layers of supervision. And so now you have way more unsupervised work than we used to. Then you add into it all the technology things that have turned us into virtual communities doing work. You got people that are nowhere near each other. We think that all the unsupervised work has created an entirely different environment in which people lead. Inside of that, if you keep treating people the way we did when they were all in a single factory together, right, right. You, there you rely on supervision. And it's almost punitive, even if it's benevolent. Uh-huh. You know, there's somebody watching. Now, it's based on people's independent and discretionary effort, their connection to things. So we've seen that the companies that have thrived as that kind of organizational environment has changed have had two different kinds of vitality. One of them is commercial vitality. And that means that whatever the reason for the existence of the enterprise is, it's successful over time, even under varying conditions. So as the economy goes up and down, as markets change, for instance. But the second kind of vitality is social vitality, which is the people who work there, love the work, experience being a part of a community they're proud to be in, love making the contributions they're making, and choose to do it every day without anybody forcing them. And so we think that getting more done with less supervision is the practical problem. But the real issue is if you cannot, over time, harness people's natural love of making a meaningful difference so that companies run off of that instead of off of autocratic instruction, then you're missing the way organizations are gonna to have to operate going forward.
1: Well, people love to make a meaningful difference. I, I, I have the time, and heck, maybe a majority of the time, I don't think they even really know that and could even articulate it, but I think that's exactly what, what most people want to do. They just don't know how to do that, and the role of a leader is to, is to put them in a position where they can do that, right?
0: Beautifully said. Yeah. And I think you're right thought about people are not often conscious to their innate desire to leave things better than they found them. And that's why in the forward, no, I think the introduction to the vitality imperative, we ask the reader a question, have you ever mowed a lawn? And if so, did you stop in the middle to admire the short grass next to the long grass?
1: <laughs> yep, I did that every time.
0: So if so, you're like the rest of us. We right. like being able to tell that we made a difference. And yet, so many of our organizations, for instance, they don't invent measures to help people make a difference. They invent lag measures to decide who to bless and who to blame. Uh What about measures that tell me, in the moment, am I cutting the grass the way I want so that I enjoy seeing the difference that I'm making? So yeah, we do think it's inherent, just as you said, and it's time to get it to be conscious that, hey... People actually like leaving things better than they found them. Right. I hear a lot of companies, I, one recently, a client that asked us, a prospective client, so we haven't yet agreed to do this work, was referred by a CEO from another company, and I went and met with them, and I asked him what the topic was that had him want to schedule a meeting, and he said, we need a breakthrough in accountability. And I said, okay, can you say a little bit more about what that means? well, we've been having this cost reduction initiative going on for several years, and people are not meeting their targets. So clearly we've got people that aren't accountable.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that's such a common tale, though, that story. Good Lord.
0: And so we, in a conversation with him, you know, I asked him to consider that maybe the way you're running your company is perfectly designed to have the cost continue to go up. Right. And that was a stunning conversation, Uh, because people really would love to have improvement. And so we had to get into it and really start seeing how, instead of trying to force people to be better, how do you create the conditions in which their natural desire to contribute is unleashed? And that's what a lot of the vitality Imperative is about, is how do you get our leadership practices to be consistent with the nature of being human, Because I think most people are running most large organizations inconsistent with the neurology and biology of a human being.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Before we go to break, Mickey, I I want to talk about the actual word vitality. It's one of those words that I fear that if you were to ask 10 people, well, give me a definition of what you think vitality is, I think you'd get some interesting Diverse answers as to what the definition of that actual word is So just before we spend the second half of the show talking about the vitality imperative I want to be sure people go into that really fully understanding what is meant and certainly what you guys mean by that word And so that they have a visceral understanding of it. I mean, what is vitality? What's a vital leader and then what is the role of vitality?
0: Well, the way we're looking at vitality is one of the definitions. It's the capacity to live, grow, and develop in a way that increases intellectual, emotional, and physical vigor or energy. You know, so does an organization have vitality? Is it growing? Is it developing? And do people, do have they more energy at the end of the week than they did at the beginning? And we're saying if you put those two things together, the commercial vitality and the personal vitality, you produce more results with less time, money, and stress. So that's what we mean by it. We mean vigor, energy, intellectually, emotionally, and physically.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you said something else that's very important that we'll dive into after the break. So Mickey, Connolly, and I will return after this short break. We'll be right back. In today's workplace, business leaders face significant pressure to recruit and retain the best employees, to effectively build a team, to create a culture that is healthy, productive, and dynamic, and to empower their staff in managing stress and finding balance. And behind all those pressures is one goal, to strengthen and grow the business. And too many organizations struggle with this. Unlimited Coaching Solutions provides customized strategies and training to help reach your goals and take your teams to the next level. Call them today at 585-248 9322, or find them online at unlimitedcoaching.com. All right, I am back with Mickey Connolly, the chairman of Conversant and the author of a new book called The Vitality Imperative. So, right before the break, there, Mickey, I, I mentioned that you said something critical that I think it's important to understand here is I think you're talking about both the vitality of the organization and of the people within it, right?
0: Absolutely correct.
1: So so expand on that. Why, why should you focus on both?
0: Well, you could have the vitality of a commercial business model for a certain period of time because you have a monopoly on a technology, for instance. Uh, you are the only place people can go for a unique value. And you can get away with that for a certain period of time. However, Over time, if it's that great, other people emulate, copy, do things to compete, and then you've got to have another basis of maintaining the commercial vitality of your enterprise. And we think that that other basis is the relationship people have to the work. How connected are they to the work? And the companies we've studied that really, over time, through different leadership eras, through different market environments, through different evolutions of technology, have done well, There's been these three things that people report over and over and over again. And one is a very strong sense of community. They're proud of the work they're doing, they're happy to belong to that work group, and they tend to look out for each other in good times and bad. So that's the sense of community. A sense of contribution, as you and I were talking about earlier, where they really feel like they're making a meaningful difference. And the experience of choosing work rather than being ordered to work. And so if you just think of how your costs of leadership, particularly supervision, go down in an environment of community contribution and choice, it's an extraordinary advantage for any organization. And so that's why we think if you're just relying on you've got a unique technology, for instance, you're not taking advantage of the social contribution of people who have an experience of community contribution and choice.
1: Hmm. Well, just hearing you a minute ago say that's the difference between choosing to work or being ordered to work is a nice segue into the next discussion topic. And it's because what you guys have said is that the vitality imperative provides a more humane and lasting approach to this, to business than the way we've been doing. I and mean, if I'm hearing you, you're saying that, frankly, the, the approach has been inhumane or unhumane, whatever the right way to say that is. And I think I agree with you. Am I on the right path there? Well, I think
0: inadvertently
1: inhumane.
0: So right, if you, right, right, you know, if we go back to the Industrial Revolution and you know, there's famous quotes, this will be a paraphrase, but it's pretty close, like Henry Ford saying, when he's looking at the system of work, he said, "I just need another pair of hands, but they keep coming with a head attached." <laughs> <laughs> right. And and I have somebody. This is from a a brand new client who just last week they're going through a an integration of two companies into a new operating system, and this one very senior executive said, "Can't we go back to the time where we didn't have to talk to so many people?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I could just do my work, and what's happened is over when people just try to go for efficiency, we begin to order people as though we were ordering pieces in a process, mm-hmm. and I mean order there not just like command, but you know do this in this order, and there's a lot about that that's intelligent and wonderful. The more stable an environment is, the more you can have very orderly processes and manuals that people just follow and the work somehow works. But the more dynamic the environment, the more change-rich, the more people's judgment and relationship to the work is actually the source of effectiveness. And we are in a time where organizations are sharing information so fast relative to 20 years ago, that the idea of stable, well, let's just say that doesn't last very long. Right, right. So it worked if everything was really static, if it was stable, if it was predictable. But now it doesn't work that way. So back then we were treating people like things in a process. Now we have to treat them like thinking beings and have that be an asset, not an annoyance.
1: Hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. And thinking about this further, and for all this to work and for it to really sing and really have a, a, a demonstrable impact on the organization in a really exciting, positive way, the leader has to be authentic, right? I mean, why is that so important?
0: Well, one of the things that we have proven to our own great satisfaction over the last 30 years is that the truth accelerates achievement. Yeah. Yeah. And when we talk about authenticity, we say it's got three aspects to it. The first one is, are you telling the truth? You better have that. Mm -hmm,
1: (laughs) mm -hmm.
0: The second is, can you hear the truth when it's disappointing, unwelcome? So there's so many studies about cognitive bias where people are unable to actually hear the unwelcome truth. So that's an aspect of authenticity. And then the third aspect is staying true to something over good times and bad.
1: Mm.
0: So the reason we say that authenticity is crucial is that if people are living in an environment where they're telling the truth, hearing the truth, and staying true to something, you really build a strong sense of community. Because people find out they actually feel better knowing the truth than keeping the pseudo-peace of avoiding issues. And I think the biggest source of waste that we see in large organizations in the world today is avoiding conversations.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And authenticity, actually, for us, there's a design to it. How do you manage a conversation? In working with negotiators over many years, one of the big things we show them is that the test for your skill is disclosure from the other people involved. If they open up and start being honest, it gets much easier to figure out how to resolve differences.
1: Yeah, yeah. God, well, just, so we have, yeah sorry, sorry to step on you there. The, the, there's just two immediate thoughts. I mean, when, when your team, when your organization, when they, quote, know the truth, they have skin in the game, right? Because I mean, they, they, they feel a part of it, which then makes them want to make a different kind of decision in terms of how they engage and contribute. So comment on that if you will. And then the second thing is when you when you the authenticity to be able to hear the actual truth, which may oftentimes be and may, maybe come across as bad news, is it really isn't. It's really more it's 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 a signal on, on how to on how to go forward. I mean and I, I think we're just we're so attuned to saying, Oh, it's bad news and so I don't I'm gonna reject it when it actually it's, that's valuable information. And if you take it in and do something actionable and meaningful with it, well, that's, that becomes game-changing, right?
0: It is, and there's a path to that, Todd, from our experience, which is this is where community gets very practical. Because the reason have, people have difficulty hearing the truth most of the time is not an act of unwillingness, like, oh, this doesn't sound good, I don't want to hear it. They are thoughtlessly – unable to hear it because of cognitive bias, where we get attached to a point of view and anything that doesn't fit with that flows by unnoticed. So when you turn executive teams into open, transparent communities, none of us are going to get through our careers not having moments of opinionated bias where we're actually unable to see things. But we will not all be stupid at the same time. (laughs) So if you've really turned an executive team into a community where we're looking out for each other, the day that Mickey is completely missing something because I'm addicted to an opinion that's skewing my way of hearing information, Todd gets to grab me by the shoulder and go, hey, 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 (laughs) look, there's four things here that you just missed and we need to discuss them. So for us, community has got enormous practical power because it is a prophylactic to terrible judgment
1: Mm -hmm. well there's some great lines here and and, and i'm going to be thinking about this your comment of turning an executive team into a community boy that's brilliant and if you when you think on that even for just a a few seconds boy that that changes your whole viewpoint and how you can look at an executive team and how it can actually be a, a powerful Agent of positive change I, that's 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 i'm gonna be thinking on that one for a bit long after we're, we uh we wrap this interview gosh, so four hundred directions I could go with this uh, unfortunately we're running low on time. what I want to do is close with one final discussion so someone listening to this whose operation is hardly one of vitality, and someone says, "Boy, how do I begin to initiate this vitality imperative, this this new mindset into our organization?" But I have no idea how to frickin' start this thing. So, so any advice and counsel how an organization, large or small, can can begin to take the initial steps to go this direction?
0: Well, my first recommendation would be just go to any place where the book's available, and even on the. Amazon-type sites, you can get the introduction chapter for free and just read it, and the people who should go read it, this first chapter, are the ones who feel like everything is just too hard. Yeah. So if your experience is of really low return on effort, it's time to stop and take a look. And in the Vitality Imperative, we actually say through 30 years of study, what are seven promises? that vitality leaders are good at keeping which naturally releases this power of community contribution and choice so what i would do is read that first chapter because that's where we outline those promises and then test your own interest if you see oh two of those were great at five were horrible that's why it's so hard
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and
0: the book itself turns those promises into practical practices like what do you actually do all right. And how do you actually think? So I would just recommend if you've got things that you want to happen with less time, money, and stress, if your personal experience is, this is too hard, go read the introductory chapter and look at those promises and just do a little scan. Which ones are we great at? Which ones are we not? And if you've got one or more you're not, keep reading because there's going to be some – helpful things that came from 30 years of working with a lot of brilliant people around the world to show you how to increase the return on effort.
1: Well, and me things. If, if an organization goes through that simple effort that you just outlined, you're, you're ahead of a majority of organizations out there, right?
0: In my experience, yes. If yeah. Extraordinary how just becoming thoughtful about these things immediately increases performance
1: yeah. Well, that brings up this whole idea of awareness and if you're aware of these things boy, that's uh, at sometimes half the battle gosh Well, Mickey <laughs> Like I said, we could talk for hours on, on virtually everything we discussed today Unfortunately, we're running low on time before I do let you go a couple of things How can people contact you should they have questions on any of this Where Can they learn more about conversant? And most importantly, where can they find a copy of the Vitality Imperative?
0: Well, uh, Conversion is www.conversant.com, so you can get to us through there. My personal email is mconnolly, so that's M-C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y at conversant.com. And the Vitality Imperative will be available wherever you're buying books, and the quickest it will be available is going through the e-libraries like Amazon, etc., we invite you to go there first because you have a chance to look at that first chapter without having to buy it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and we just talked about how important that first chapter is. So good stuff. Mickey Connolly, the chairman of Conversant and the author, co-author, of a new book called The Vitality Imperative, How Connected Leaders and Their Teams Achieve More with Less Time, Money, and Stress. Mickey, my friend, uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks for stopping by, and good luck with everything.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you,
1: Todd. All right. All the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Mickey Connolly, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time on Intrepid Radio. Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to IntrepidMailingList.com. That's IntrepidMailingList.com and sign up. You can also find us at Intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now, get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.